and welcome to Father Spitzer's Universe at the very busy intersection of faith and reason where we meet each week here in Father Spitzer's Universe. I'm Doug Keck, uh, the guardian of the gates, so to speak. And of course, uh, you can email your questions to us at spitzersuniversitydw10.com. They're central to the program. And check out all of Father Spitzer's websites. They're myriad, but the ones we'll mention, magiscenter.com, crediblecatholic.com, and purposefuluniverse.com. And Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EW10 On Demand page. You can watch the show and on our YouTube channel as well. We also have some short uh, versions of his show available. And, you know, in honor of the National Eucharistic Revival, EW10's On Demand now features a new Eucharistic category with many of your favorite programs all about the Eucharist. So uh, if you want to find out what the church actually teaches, check us out On Demand 24-7 YouTube or our On Demand page. Now we're going to talk about the enemy, Satan's preparations for effective temptations from Father's book, Christ vs. Satan in Our Daily Lives, available through our catalog. You better get it. There's new books coming. you got to catch up here. And the book of the month for September, though, is Taught by Ten. A psychologist's father learns from his ten children. We knew Dr. Ray learned somewhere. Apparently this is how he found out what he actually knows. But he's a riot. He's great. The book is a fun read. Check it out through our EWTN Religious Catalog. With that, we're talking to another fun personality here on EWTN with always interesting insights. The one and only Father Spitzer. Great to see you. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Doug. Great to be with you, too. Very good. So if you want to kick everything off, as usual, with a prayer, that'd be great. You bet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you today to send your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will. For the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom, we ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, and of course, just wanted to mention, of course, uh, our family celebration that's coming up Saturday, October 1st at the Phoenix Convention Center in Phoenix. Go to our EW10.com for more information, not because I'm going to be there, but because Father Spitzer is going to be there. So <laughs> you got to, you got if you're watching this show and you love Father Spitzer, here's a great chance to see him in mm. person. And not only that, he'll be there with Father Mitch Paquis. So we've got the dynamic duo uh, are going to be there along with uh, Johnette, whose picture's up there before, and Marcus. So we always have a great time and book signings and meet and greets. So it's, it's always a lot of fun for everybody and uh, even having a religious catalog opportunity as well. And Father Spitzer will be there. Uh, but there's a lot going on, unfortunately, uh, good, bad, and different in the world as always. You know, with the Dobbs decision, a lot of pro-lifers felt like, okay, well, we won, uh, let's go back home. But uh, the fight continues. And uh, one of the states where it's going on is Michigan. And Bishop yep. Earl Boyer uh, came out uh, about the idea that Catholics really have to fight like heaven against this pro-abortion amendment that's being put out. He cited how the amendment technically allows for abortions up to the point of birth, described it in a letter as the most extreme abortion pro proposal this country has ever witnessed. And that's the thing. They hide it in this kind of language that means makes it seem like it's less than what it actually is. But it really does 
uh, open it up until basically birth. And he says the most important front line in this battle for life and love, however, and this is really important, is the local parish. It will be you and each of us does what we can, including prayer, sacrifice, and action will overcome this attack on life. It's dramatic and as simple as that. And that's, that's really the call to action for Catholics now. They gotta, this is a direct vote on something like this. You've got to stand up for life, right? Uh, absolutely, and, and um, this is going to happen in the upcoming midterm elections in just two months, too. I mean, Michigan's right under the gun right now, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm just begging everybody who has any influence in the state of Michigan uh, to start not only organizing in their parishes, but engaging people, um, making contributions to uh, Michigan Pro-Life so that those ads can get on uh, to the television. We can buy adequate ad space uh, to deal with this initiative. Uh, everything you can do, let's organize in the parishes uh, to, to really stop this thing at the grassroots. Uh, I mean, these things are coming at us fast and furious uh, right after, you know, the, uh, uh, the Dobbs decision, which uh, effectively reversed Roe versus Wade. But that's just step one. Uh, we really do have to protect life in all of our states as well. And um, it's not just the, the Michigan um, election, but uh, I hate to say this, this is just the first act. The second act is going to be these upcoming midterm elections. And right now there are a lot of people uh, who are running scared because uh, the position uh, out there has really been characterized solely as a woman's right to choose. But it can't be only about a woman's right to choose. The Supreme Court has acknowledged the contemporary science, and the contemporary science says very clearly that human life begins at fertilization or conception. Now, let me just explain this for just a second. There have been a lot of really good uh, DNA studies um, that have been done, DNA sequencing studies that have been done, and a lot of good studies that have been done on the human zygote. There's no question now. It is a conclusive scientific statement that human life begins at fertilization. Now, is that confirmed by professional biologists? Absolutely it's confirmed by professional biologists, right? Uh, you, you just get, get this new international survey of professional bi biologists, 5,600 of them, and 96%, that's almost unanimously, right. affirm that life begins at fertilization. A new, unique human being begins at fertilization. There has never been a human being like this before. There will never be another one like this before. Absolutely unique, distinctive, self-developing um, um, human being uh, that is present there at fertilization. Another big survey done in the U.S. with essay questions even that allowed uh, the doctors and biologists who are answering the question, you know, to, to uh, give their own opinions about when life began. And even in this very broad survey, 68%, a supermajority, affirmed that life began, a new unique human being be, uh, occurs at uh, fertilization. Now, once you've got science that's indisputably uh, like this, how is the Supreme Court, tell me this, how is the Supreme Court going to be able to deny that human life 
is there. And if human life is really there, and all human life, according to the universal prescripts of equity and justice, have the inalienable right to life, then how can abortion be anything other than the killing of a unique human being, an innocent human being who has done nothing to warrant death? Now, if that's the case, could the Supreme Court have done anything differently in Dobbs? Of course they could. They had to declare that abortion is not a right. Indeed, we have a duty to oppose it because it is the killing of a citizen. Make no mistake about this. If you've got a human being with the inalienable right to life, make no mistake about it, that human being is a citizen. That human being was, bo was conceived in the jurisdiction of these United mm. States, has done nothing wrong to abrogate his human rights or her human rights, and therefore he is a, or she is a citizen. And if that is the case, then the states and the United States collectively have an interest not only in protecting that life, but a duty to protect that human life. The Supreme Court did the only possible um, uh, decision that could be done in light of the contemporary science that shows that a unique human life is present at conception or fertilization. Now, once this is established, all I can say is we've got to defend it. We've got to get out there, and the first thing we have to do uh, as these midterms come, we have to really support initiatives and political candidates that really are pro-life, that are going to have the courage and, and you know, the conviction, the, the, in the sense of justice and equity within them to want to defend human life from conception, from fertilization, mm. um, you know, throughout the rest of, um, you know, our lives into our natural deaths. Now, that's the first thing that we also, though, have to, you know, not just contribute our votes. We also, if we can and have the means to do so, uh, contribute our creativity, our energy, and our willingness to engage in these kinds of issues. And the second thing is, again, as I said before, we can no longer stand by and let people, let this political junta that's out there uh, trying to take over our press, or the press has actually adopted them, uh, basically to allow them to frame this issue as if it were only the, the rights of a woman to choose. It, it can no longer be that way. In light of the, the science that clearly makes the determination that life is uh, present at fertilization, you have to say that this is also the rights of the fundamental right. right to life, inalienable right to life of pre-born human beings who are citizens of this country, and we have to defend those rights, and we have to say, no, you cannot ignore these rights. You cannot sort of push your agenda on top of them so that people at least are blinded to them temporarily. They have rights, and we will defend the rights of those who cannot defend defend their own rights. And this is our prerogative as citizens. Nay, it is our duty as citizens. If not we, then who will defend their rights? Let's get out there and work for this. Well, let Let's me ask not you, let the propaganda artists well, you, reframe the you, issue. You brought that up and the idea that we, we're dealing in a world where it seems like if, if somebody's questions, they either just avoid the question or they basically lie about it. 
And, and recently, a, a person in the media uh, made the statement that, you know, his, his Bible in the red letter edition, which is the things that Jesus supposedly said, uh, you know, or highlighted, uh, and, uh, and saying, well, he never said anything about abortion, so, uh, you know, abortion must be okay. What do you say to somebody? Makes a well, first goofy of all, statement like uh, that, but anyway. Yeah, well, it's, right. it's goofy because first right. of all, Jesus, of course, subscribed to Old Testament, read certainly to the Levitical, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, equity and justice laws, and of course, he also sub uh, uh, subscribed uh, to Ezekiel, uh, right? That uh, said that uh, you, you shall not take, uh, uh, you know, a human life from the womb. That's very clear, even in Old Testament read, and of course. Does Jesus support, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the life of, of uh, you know, innocent human children? Yes, their angels are actually looking into his heavenly father's eyes. And you, you want to be the person that Jesus says, you dare not. Um, you destroy or harm one of these little ones. Right, and uh, because their angels look into my heavenly father's eyes. Of course he's not. Uh, he may not have used the word abortion. My gosh, you know that, you know, Jesus didn't use a lot of words in the Bible. But you cannot eliminate then and say that Jesus wasn't interested in abortion. Jesus was always interested in protecting children, always innocent in protecting innocent human life, always innocent, uh, always interested in trying to, uh, you know, not only protect what's in Old Testament writ as justice and equity, but also what's in his heart as what's necessary in order to make a just world and a culture of life. And that's why you can see, for example, in the Didache, which was written around 80 AD. It's the first catechetical text that we have in the church, 80 AD. And what's there emblazoned right at the top, practically? Do not take the life of a person in the womb. Abortion is a sin. Okay, it's there. It's part of Christianity. It's part of its initial traditions and its moral uh, codes from the very beginning. And it's certainly writ large in Ezekiel, and it's certainly in the Levitical Code. Give me a break. I mean, that, that's, that's just goofy, uh, you know, to right. say that Jesus would not have, you know, in some way uh, thrown his mantle of, of authority over those things which are utterly fundamental in terms of the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Right, exactly. I mean, uh, the general understanding is the church, even through history, only spoke out about things when they became a question. The reason they didn't talk about yeah. them was because the belief was everybody already understood what the teaching was, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I mean, I think this is absolutely understood by Jesus. I mean, no scribe would oppose the question to Jesus, is it okay to take life in the womb? Jesus would have said, what are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, what are you guys, uh, you, you haven't studied the law? You don't know the prophets? What's the matter with you? Right. Of course, you, you know, I mean, it's right there. It's, it's not a question that would ever come up in that kind of a context. Right. Well, the Jewish religion, uh, the Israelites were the ones who stood up against child, child sacrifice, right? I mean, they were the, really the first yeah. ones to stand up against it. Yeah, they did. And they, and they pushed back on it so hard and and the prophets i mean from moses onward uh, just said you can't be like them can't be offering those children up to be burned in sacrifice you know and you know, there's outright condemnation of that practice um uh, by uh, 
uh, all the, the Jewish prophets almost unanimously. And so, uh, um, you know, now some, of course, Israelites uh, tried to do this, uh, but boy, they got fury thrown at them as being first line, you know, uh, um, you know, departers of the, the justice and goodness of God. Right. Let's move on to another topic. You know, we have the synodal uh, way going on, kind of various discussions around the United States, around the world. Yeah. But one of the more interesting ones that have kind of uh, captured the headlines is what's going on in Germany, which has kind of been leading the way in a lot of ways about this multi-year gathering of bishops and lay people and their four main topics. I thought one of the things that was interesting, their topics are power. That's the first one. Uh, the priesthood, women in the church, and sexuality. Uh, and power, I always thought that was an interesting uh, one for somebody to be focused on inside the church. But they talk about the Frankfurt Assembly was, was almost derailed on its first day when a document calling for changes to Catholic se sexual ethics failed to gain the necessary two-thirds majority. But this is what I thought was interesting, and I want your take. Organizers changed the Assembly's rules so that votes would no longer be cast anonymously but by name. They also increased the speaking time. Over the next couple of days, all the remaining texts were endorsed by both lay delegates and bishops. And I don't want to go into the ones, and they're non-binding, but they are, you know, provocative. Women in ministry, gender issues, non-heterosexual priests, uh, creating a permanent council as if it has some power over the bishops, which Rome has obviously indicated it does not. But it's interesting with the idea that, you know, when people can vote anonymously, you know, that's when they're actually voting what they really believe for the most part. But when you have mm -hmm. to do it publicly, then suddenly all the, the social pressures get on people to vote the right way. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, when you're dealing with things that are clearly heterodox, clearly not part of the faith, and you're really trying to change the long-standing, not only tradition, but obvious doctrines of the church. You're all, you know, already going off the rails. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, it doesn't take much to, to derail the train completely. And so, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the, the synodal process can't be uh, basically a fundamental, you know, interruption or contradiction of the long-standing doctrine and traditions of the church. Uh, there has to be some rationale for it. Well, notice how the whole thing was framed, as you put it. Mm -hmm. uh, the power issue comes up right at the top because that's supposed to be the hermeneutic through which all the other kinds of synodal uh, um, doc, uh, proposals are going to be interpreted. But we don't use a power dynamic. We don't use a power hermeneutic in the church. Never have used a power hermeneutic. We have used a hermeneutic of prayer and of faith and of love. And so um, the idea that we should start with power rather than love and faith and prayer, um, I think Paul would have been so mystified by that kind of a prioritization and that kind of a hermeneutic, I think he would have thrown his arms up in disgust. And so uh, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, of course, would have done, I think, the very same thing and just said, you know, you have totally misunderstood me. 
This was not about power. It's not about ecclesiastical authority and getting our share of the offices. What it is about is serving God through his church to his people in the ways that we can through marked charity and faith that will transform the world according to the love that is in our, that is to say, the Trinity's heart. And that's what they're supposed to, I mean, the hermeneutic of power is just so false. It's so wrong. And you can just see the spirit that underlies it. Hmm, what spirit really is seeking for power. Let's see which spirit is always trying to replace the hermeneutic of love with the hermeneutic of power. Hmm, let's see. Well, it's not the Holy Spirit as far as I can determine. I have to right. suppose in that case that the idea of conflict, of power, of confrontation, of edging people aside like you're under the basket in order to get a share of ecclesiastical power and authority, I have to assume that this comes from a darker spirit. Right. Another topic, uh, a totally different issue, but somehow related in a, in a way to the whole pro-life thing. I thought an interesting uh, story came out of the Catholic World Report that a, uh, an article from Europe, uh, an actress in the United States named Mindy Kaling, apparently was uh, nominated many times for, uh, for Emmys. I don't know that she ever won. Apparently she was on the program The Office. Uh, um, and, her, and she gave some advice to young people. She said, I wish every 19-year-old girl would come home from college and the gift, instead of buying them jewelry or a vacation or whatever, is that their parents would take them to freeze their eggs. They could do that once and have all their eggs for them for their future. Then they could focus in their 20s and 30s, uh, I guess on what she believes is really important, on your career. And yes, even love, but to know that when you're emotionally ready, uh, and even if you don't have a partner, you can still have children. That, that's her advice. Well, that's pretty sick, I have to tell you. I just think it is such a reverse. You know, I, I, it's not just the mechanical function of having children. It's having children through love, to be raised in a family of love. It's the idea is not just the family of love, but the family of love animated by the faith in the God who is unconditional love himself and who speaks the truth to us and the truth and goodness. So, I mean, I, I you know, the idea, you know, that you, you know, you're going to go home and, and put your, you know, eggs into a refrigerator uh, in order to assure that while you're working on your career all this time, you got a few fresh eggs so that uh, if you can't have the children, you could have a surrogate mother do that or something of that nature. And that you have no, you know, the, the intention is not to start a family in love as the kind of the priority, but the priority is the career. And you can throw in a few kids on the side, you know, that uh, uh, you, you can, uh, right. you know, they don't interfere you with your career. Right? Process. Yeah, yeah, as long as they exactly. don't interfere with your career. And yeah. what's really important. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, and, we, exactly. And, we've seen, and we've seen that with the wreckage of so many lives, uh, famous people either committing suicide or when you find out later, you know, the wreckage of drug abuse and, and all the other things because yeah. they're, they're virtually living an impossibly unnatural existence. Here's one last yeah. thing before we go to questions. Uh, you like studies, so Crux just put out uh, an, an article uh, from Pew having to do, which basically says if the trends of the past 30 years continue for the next 50, Christianity will lose its majority status in the United States by 2070. 
And it goes on, even with the demographic modeling used by Pew, the numbers vary widely. Christians put by Pew currently 64% of the population could slide to 54 or plunge all the way down to 35%, depending on which model you believe. Uh, now, this was the part I thought that was an interesting connection. It said men bear some responsibility for the shrinking numbers of Christians, according to the report. Americans, quote, is Americans who have moved away from Christianity are more likely to be men, while women are more likely to remain in Christian identity. And we always talk about the idea, and you've talked about the fact, that, the, that what is the indicator that the family will continue or the children will continue to have faith? It's the attendance and the practice of the father. Yes, right. that's correct, and uh, it has uh, a much more substantial impact. If you believe uh, that Swiss study that came out a few years back, uh, it would be that uh, if you have both the mother and the father, um, you know, going to church, um, then the odds of the, the children going to church at least uh, some of the time and uh, uh, at least about 50% uh, of them going all the time regularly uh, to church are about 75%. If you have the mother alone, it, it drops to less than 20% going, or no, I'm sorry, 35% going both occasionally and, re and only 2% uh, will be going regularly. I mean, whoa! I mean, the, the difference is so huge. Uh, it's, it's unimaginable. So the father, first of all, has a, a much higher degree of influence according to this uh, comprehensive Swiss study. So uh, that's the first thing. Yeah, um, fathers have to, to really uh, manifest their faith if their kids are really going to uh, practice regularly and mm -hmm. and maybe be held accountable for not doing that when their children don't practice. But the second thing that's really important too is we have a responsibility. I mean, let's face it, mm -hmm. men like science. Uh, they just do. And, and and if we can get that scientific evidence for God, it's plentiful. Mm -hmm. I talk about it on this show all the time. The scientific evidence uh, uh, for Jesus Christ, I mean, especially with the Shroud of Turin and, and so forth, the scientific evidence for the soul with near-death experiences, etc. I mean, these miracles that, that you have, too, with the study of the Guadalupe image, etc., etc., that you have concerned with Mary. And now these three incredible Eucharistic miracles of Buenos Aires and Tixla and, and Sokolka, Poland, I mean, you know, from 1996 to 2008, you look at all these things, I mean, there's a lot of science out there. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of evidence from science uh, for God for Jesus, for the uh, soul, for uh, the church, and for uh, the Eucharist. And, and so my, my thought is, give the men what they need. You know, don't hold back. I mean, they're looking for a, a more concrete evidence. Give them the evidence because it's there. And if you don't know where to get it, go to MajaCenter.com, MajaCenter.com, or to CredibleCatholic.com. CredibleCatholic.com, or read my books. I got two new ones that are going to come out in 2023, Science at the Doorstep to God and Science at the Doorstep to Christ. And then I'm going to have another one for OSV, uh, our Sunday Visitor uh, Press is putting out the new American, the new New American Bible, but I'm doing the Faith, Science, and Reason Study Bible for OSV. And so if you take a look at all those things, I think you will shoot, see, uh, you know, men, there's enough there to, you know, to pile right. evidence upon evidence, and you don't have to be then someone who, who looks like you're just uh, putting your, your faith in, in the air. There is plenty. God has provided plenty for us, and we can, uh, uh, pr but practicing is so important. 
absolutely so important. You just have to do it for the sake of your, ch your children and the next generation. Otherwise, the likelihood will, of their going to mass regularly will plummet um, right. you know, from about 35% to 2%. And for the you know, irregularly, the, the occasional attendance um, will plummet from uh, right. whatever it is, 60% uh, to 35%. I thought that was an interesting connection that came out there uh, that kind of reinforced yeah. uh, other studies. Oh, yeah. And, and while we're shilling, we can also mention the fact that you've got a new book coming out that in November, and we're going to be doing an oh, interview yeah. about that book at the family celebration. If people are there, they can uh -huh. sit in on that interview if they'd like to. So that'll be airing, yeah. I'm sure, once we get that done later this fall. Yeah, absolutely. And then one of these days, there's going to be a book out based on uh, your answers to the questions that were featured oh, yes. here on this program. So uh, that's absolutely true. will be able to get that out there as well. Let's get, we got two minutes. Let's get started with one of our questions. Dear Father okay. Spitzer, on a recent episode of Father Spitzer's Universe, I understood you to say that it is Catholic teaching and if you go to heaven when you die, you immediately receive a glorified body that can see, hear, remember, make contact with those you love. However, I asked several priests about this, and they told me that you only get your glorified body at the last judgment at the end of the world. If I did not misunderstand you, what is the source of your information, Francesca? Well, first, uh, Francesca, that's two good points. But there are two stages in this. Uh, the first thing is, yes, when you die, uh, it looks, uh, at least according to all the recent peer-reviewed medical studies we have, it looks like your consciousness is definitely going to survive your bodily death. And not only that, you will be able to see, to hear, to move. You can, tr uh, you know, transcend physical limits like walls and solidity and gravity and physical laws and things of that nature. You will have all your memories intact, etc. But that doesn't mean you have a glorified body. Okay. A glorified body uh, it means that you're going to be brought to the state of Jesus' risen body uh, that the apostles witnessed. This is the risen body that was so beautiful and so, uh, you know, they, the apostles actually thought they were seeing uh, God. They, they thought they were literally seeing a theophany uh, when Jesus appeared to them. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so they uh, uh, were obviously frightened until Jesus identified himself. Look, it's just me. Look at the wounds in my hands, etc. So the idea um, here is the, the glorified body. When will this come? Well, some theologians say that the glorified body um, uh, uh, will come at the last judgment. Uh, that seems mm -hmm. to be uh, um, um, consistent with what uh, Jesus says? Uh, is it a matter of doctrine? Um, I, if there is a, a doctrine that declares the timing of the glorified body, uh, I don't think I've ever read it, but there might be, and I'm certainly no doctrinal expert um, in that uh, sense of the timing of the glorified body. But surely, by the time of the glorified judgment, if you are moving toward the heavenly kingdom, uh, you will certainly receive right. it. Could you receive it earlier when you actually get to heaven? For example, could the saints right now have their glorified body in heaven? Well, I, I'm not seeing any Catholic doctrine that denies uh, that the saints might have a glorified body right now uh, in heaven just as Jesus right. did. I think Certainly Mary does. Right. And um, so I don't know, to be honest right. with and you. But certainly it could... Okay, we better I just focus. Want to say, could be, yeah, go ahead. Okay. No, I was just going to say it could be delayed till the last judgment. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, till the final judgment, and that, that might well be the case. 
Uh, we got to take a break and just remind us all, let's worry about getting there first, and then we can uh, see how, how the bodies yeah. are distributed. Much more ahead with Father Spitzer Universe, more questions to be answered, and then the book. Stay with us. And welcome back to Father Spitzer's Universe, busy intersection of faith and reason on Mother Angelica Way as were our studios. Satan's preparation for effective temptations from Father's book, Christ versus Satan, in our daily lives is our topic. But first, we've got some more of your questions you sent in. Here's one. I don't know if you're uh, if you're a historian as well, uh, but uh, dear Father Spitzer, were Adam and Eve, Noah, Samson, and other people in the Old Testament real historical people or myths? Brian. Okay, well, uh, Veronica, they are real people, but they are portrayed with all kinds of metaphor um, in these stories. So, for example, there is a real first and sold man, we could call him Adam, and a real first and sold woman, we could call her Eve. And those two first and sold people were given their souls by God. And would they have, did they commit an original sin? We are told that they did. And, you know, and the sin basically was something along the lines of wanting to be like God, the typical old pride and self-idolatry. So that's the, uh, um, the essential um, uh, truth in the story. Now, was there really a, you know, a serpent coiled around a tree? Or did the devil just come as the devil normally does? I mean, yes, the devil was there. I'm sure he was there. And I'm sure there was an original state of Adam and Eve, which, uh, of course, was a state where they had a sense of God that was utterly profound. And I'm sure that the devil basically somehow talked them into giving up that wonderful state of profound awareness of God in order to be just like him. And I'm sure there was something that was utterly egocentric, utterly self-idolatrous that was in the temptation. Now you say, well, you know, that person was just a, a very primitive person. And, I, you know, it, my belief is that that and sold Adam and Eve lived about 60,000 years ago. And I do think, though, that's not only the time when human progress began, right? 60,000 years ago, you can tell that a soul came, uh, came about there because you've not only got mathematics, you've got these three-columned counting sticks, which shows real sophistication, not just in counting, but in mathematical operations. And then you see, you know, conceptual linguistic distinctions where people are actually, you know, so sophisticated linguistically, they can actually build, you know, a whole civilized units, right, where, where there's a center of a civil of, of a dwelling and then going outwards uh, mm. from the center, etc., and the irrigation things that eventually become part of it. The improvements in technology are, are overwhelming from 60,000 years ago uh, to 40,000 years ago, including shipbuilding and, you know, weaponry, uh, fire making. You look at it and, I mean, now they're just going 
uh, you know, crazy. And of course, the big, huge migration uh, that takes place uh, from to the top of Africa, and of course, they uh, uh, cross over into Europe and into the Middle East, and then uh, actually take ships, uh, you know, from Asia all the way down to Indonesia across the ocean, and they go all the way up the entire European. Uh, continent all the way to the Arctic land bridge, cross over the Arctic land bridge and go all the way down to the southernmost tip uh, from North America to South America and they do all this in 20,000 years. Heck, our genetic ancestors were sitting there on the border of Angola and Namibia for 130 to 140,000 years and didn't do anything but crack nuts and eat coconuts and do nothing. And all of a sudden, boom, they're mathematical. All of a sudden, boom, they're religious. All of a sudden, boom, they're making these little religious figurines. All of a sudden, boom, they're, they're burying their, their dead with all kinds of grave goods that could be used in the next afterlife, uh, even anticipating a journey where they'd need food and fire and weaponry inside their graves. All of a sudden, they become aesthetic, and they, they, they're building, they have bone flutes, and they're painting uh, cave pictures on the walls and, uh, you know, so of, of caves, and, and, and they're taking this huge migration seriously. And, and you look at it as homo aestheticus, homo ethicus, all of a sudden, the moral taboos and so forth are coming about 60,000 years ago, and then transcendental thoughts about gods and afterlife, and, and so they're, they're becoming, you know, uh, homo religiosus, and, and, and in addition to that, they're homo mathematicus and, and, and homo linguisticus, and, and they're, they're totally different 60,000 years ago. And do I believe that God made them in such a fashion that they would have such an overwhelming and direct knowledge of himself that'd be irresistible? Yes, I do. And do I believe that the devil comes and says, Hmm, you guys have everything except one thing. You're not God. You can actually be like the guy who you adore and admire. And I can help you out with a little dose of self-idolatry and a little bit of rebellion against God. Do I believe that happened? Absolutely, I do. And the same thing with Noah. We know that there was very likely a flood uh, sometime uh, in the neighborhood of, let's just say, about uh, 35,000 years ago. It, it happened in that uh, area of uh, the, the northern uh, plains up there in, in uh, maybe northern Iraq, um, uh, uh, somewhere in that area. It was a huge flood. We know something like that happened. Noah, of course, is, you know, this is a person who is a character that is borrowed uh, from a, a myth. Uh, the Atrahasis myth, and um, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to interpret the meaning of the flood. But in Atrahasis, there is no single god; there are many gods, and the gods are playing, uh, you know, with this poor man uh, who is, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Atrahasis, and they're they're basically playing with him, and and of course they've created human beings in order to be the slaves of the gods right, and so right. forth. Now the biblical author takes all of that, turns Noah into the just man. And so we believe, yes, that the biblical author was responding to the Atrahasis myth. He needs to have a biblical response that's monotheistic, where God is just, where human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. So he creates, and the, the, by the way, uh, you know, this, this uh, 
um, you know, story that is created as an interpretation of the flood, which is historical, and as an interpretation of the, uh, you know, the Christian, the Jewish interpretation of the Atchison myth. All of these things, right, uh, are, you know, are, are, it's a very steady production of uh, the biblical author in around 950 B.C. or before. So this is a, uh, uh, a you know, the so-called uh, Yahweh's uh, uh, author um, uh, or before. So we can see that these things have a, a definitely a, a part uh, which we call reality, right. but also there's an interpretive part which obviously uses metaphor as well. But the message right. about the flood, the message of the covenant of God with this man who survives the flood, the justice of Noah, and so forth, all of these things are part of the story that we, uh, of course, take very seriously as part of our own history um, as Christians. And the same thing with Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, again, there's metaphor in there. Oh, but there was a first and sold man, and there was a first and right. sold woman 60,000 years ago. And I'm sure the devil was part of that drama. And I'm sure, you know, of course, uh, amidst all the metaphor that is there to reinterpret, uh, again, that is, a, 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 right. again, a, a a reinterpretation and of they the bring up, Smith, like too. somebody like Samson, who you know is much more seemingly historical oh, in, in, in those yeah, kind of things yeah. than, than that. As yeah, so, yeah. it's not like everybody yeah. in the Old Testament is. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, Samson is much later. Right, he is exactly. a judge, and it, that's right. So he, that's a whole other thing. Now, did you know Samson? You know, collapse the walls of the temple, you know, with the chains and so forth and so on. You know, again, uh, we're out of objective uh, uh, evidence to say yes or no. Some people will say, mm, that doesn't seem logical on the basis of the growth of hair uh, from a physical point of view. So if God wanted to do that through Samson, he could have done it. But, you, you know, again, uh, nobody is required as a Catholic to believe that part of it. But did Samson exist? Yes, Samson exists. Was he a very uh, powerful judge? Yes, he was a very powerful judge. Did he ha have uh, the power actually to unite a whole uh, section of the Aramean uh, forces and the, and the uh, Semitic forces um, in the... Uh, 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 period right. of the judges, yes, he did. And so, yes, there's a whole lot of parts of that. And did his strength maybe get associated with his hair? I think it did. Did Delilah uh, uh, betray him? Probably. Right. Uh, I think all of these things are true, but there might be some uh, hyperbolic parts right. of In the narrative. Right, in the sense of how it's explained yeah. or, or, yeah. or how exactly. people tried to understand exactly what it, yep. what it occurred. Or uh, yes. they were talking about something they didn't want to talk about, so they came up with another way of explaining it. Uh, yeah. one, one other uh, question right before we get to the book, but I, it's kind of tangential to it. So, dear Father Spitzer, you occasionally talk about, and you did earlier, a death experience or NDEs. Do you think God would allow Satan to influence an NDE that was deceptive? I read a book detailing an NDE in which a person was told, there is nothing you can do wrong, quote unquote, made no mention of Jesus during this experience and was contacted by a medium during their coma. This seems dangerous to me, Dave. Wow, yeah, that's really dangerous. First of all, uh, you know, you shouldn't be working with, uh, you know, uh, mediums and so forth and so on. So that's that's the, the first mistake because uh, what you're doing uh, oftentimes is making a connection with an evil spirit. So that's the, the first thing you want to avoid it at all times. The second thing, uh, too, is, is look, a lot, 
you can use, I take peer-reviewed medical studies of near-death experiences, and I look only at what is confirmed by those peer-reviewed medical studies as a virtual certainty. Mm -hmm. So first of all, if you look at uh, this, the recent um, New York Academy of Sciences, you will see that there is a statement there by a series of scientists and doctors who have reviewed all of the peer-reviewed literature on near-death experiences. And they say, okay, so what can we say is very likely, um, you know, um, uh, to happen uh, at the time of death? And of course, they never get into details like everything you do is right. You can do nothing wrong. I mean, that's this. This is not part of a peer-reviewed study, and all of these things are anecdotal. And you should just skip that stuff. Just take number one. It's very likely that your consciousness will survive bodily death. Number two, there is about a 15% possibility that you will have a dark experience, and about an 85% possibility that you will have uh, some kind of a good experience among those who had an experience that seems or to be the breakdown. Or who remember their experience. Or remember their experience. That, that percentage could vary widely, um, you know, uh, with if we have a fuller uh, data set. Uh, number three, there's a sense of taking a journey. Uh, that frequently happens, so it's not just leaving the body and having your sight and your hearing and your memories and your intelligence and your consciousness and so forth, your ability to transcend physical laws, go through the walls of the hospital, see what's going on outside, etc. blind people recovering their sight. All of these things uh, are medically um, uh, probable uh, from the vantage point of these peer-reviewed studies. But then once you start getting beyond the journey and what happens, do they go to heaven, do they go have a dark experience, etc. All of these things are just way too ambiguous. There's not data for the New York Academy of Sciences uh, to comment on that. They also comment on uh, other uh, things that, uh, you know, do happen uh, to people, uh, you know, that uh, there might be experiences of meeting deceased relatives and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the, the basic thing is, is yes, there's a, a high right. likelihood of that happening, but all the rest of these details that you get, you know, and certainly can people use these near-death experiences, these anecdotal um, accounts of near-death experiences to be exceedingly manipulative and mm -hmm. uh, holding out their own doctrinal formulation? Absolutely, this happens all the time. Uh, you know, where you've got these, you know, groups that say, oh, you know, people had a near-death experience, and lo and behold, it, it confirms this religion or that religion. Just don't go there. Just take the data straight on as the peer review. You're, you're very likely your consciousness will survive bodily death. Very likely you will be able to transcend physical laws when this occurs. Very likely if you are blind, you will see instantly the minute you um, have, as it were, passed to the other side. You will very likely take a journey. Some of them are dark. Some of them are not, are very light and loving. Uh, some of them you encounter a white light. Some of them uh, you uh, encounter a sense of profound emptiness. And period, right. just stay with the data and you should be just fine, um, you know, there. But don't, once you start getting all these detailed accounts yeah, that are merely be. anecdotal, so many possibilities of disruption, so many possibilities right. of deceit.
Absolutely. Satan's Preparation for Effective Temptations from your book, Christ vs. Satan, yeah. Daily Lives, page 235. The evil one mm -hmm. does not want the believer under any circumstances to enter into this reflection process because it leads to the heart of moral conversion. And you talk about the idea of distraction and how important that is. And it seems like we're in a world today where we've never been more distracted than we have in history, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely the truth. Uh, remember that Paul Harvey talk where he said, if I were Satan, I'd do this. And if I were Satan, I'd do that. And, and of course, he's describing the world as we know it. Well, that's uh, uh, pretty much where we are. I mean, we have a social media and we have, a, a, you know, just gaming and, and, and so much, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, website technology for entertainment and uh, not all of it by any means uh, healthy or good. And you put all that stuff together and the world is one massive uh, distraction. And not only a distraction, but it's a distraction that, that is changing our ability to focus, to concentrate. I mean, we're, we're just turning people into, as it were, ADD, uh, you know, just from... Right constant social media uh, contact and ch switches and changes. We can't even focus on anything for more than 10 minutes. In fact, the average rate of a video today is supposed to be no longer than 90 seconds, you know. Right. I right. mean, you know, just read the tea leaves. It's, it's terrible. And so if I were Satan, uh, this is exactly what I'd do. I'd create a world of entertainment. I'd create a, a digital world in which people can have endless distractions, never think about anything metaphysical, never think about anything humanitarian, never think about anything moral or ethical, never think about anything transcendent or spiritual. Just keep right with me now. I'm going to present more images and more games and more just addictive content that you're just not going to be able to resist. And then I'm going to compound it all with a good dose of egocentricity and yeah. getting your Instagram profile right. better than everybody else's. And so... Uh, hey, why don't you, you take another point. selfie while you're at it, right? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sure everybody's exactly. waiting for that picture to be posted of you. Uh -huh, yeah. uh, except they're all looking yeah. at their own pictures on their own sites. So uh, right. you also talk about the idea about the, one of the tactics as well is to call the deadly sins that we're dealing with mere medieval anachronisms, suggesting that they induce unnecessary guilt that is psychologically unhealthy or that they have been supplanted or superseded by new psychological ways of perfecting oneself. That's right. So, you know, the idea, it's not just psychology that does it, right? But Madison Avenue is busy reinterpreting the deadly sins. So you, we've got the Gordon Gecko deal, you know. Uh, gentlemen, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. And look at all the good stuff it does for Well, Gecko, of course, is the incarnation of the devil. I say no more. You know, uh, it's, it's pretty clear that, um, you know, uh, when people start saying that uh, lust, you know, Anna Karenina style, right? The reason I, I picked that, that book 
uh, you know, as one of the dead, uh, one of the illustrations of the deadly sins, is because she's the best rationalizer around. Mm -hmm. I mean, she, oh, this love of Count Vronsky is just so good. It's so beautiful. It, it just can't be wrong. Oh, you mean I have to leave my husband and, and, and basically humiliate him in front of everybody? Well, the love is so beautiful. It just can't be wrong. I guess I'll have to do it. Oh, I have to leave my son uh, and, and just uh, kind of humiliate him. Uh, in, in, okay, I, I, I'm Count Vronsky, so beautiful, everything's so beautiful. I guess I'll just have to do it. I think I'll just run away to Paris with him. And, and it's going to be great because we'll never run out of things to do. Our love will just keep deepening and deepening. I mean, we're just beautiful people, and he's a beautiful person. I'm a beautiful person. And, and Anna Karenina was very beautiful indeed. Right, right. I mean, she walk into a, you know, the, the ballroom and everybody go, ah, you know, the, there comes Anna. Yeah. So the point is, the early version. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, and so you look at it and rationalization, it just kills you. And so long as you can put a little psychological spin that makes it look good, or a little psych a little political spin that makes it look good, or a little, you know, uh, marketing spin that makes it look good, what the heck? You know, it's got to be okay. And then, you know, uh, of course, it's not just lust uh, that we justify and greed that we justify, but we're best at vanity. I mean, this, the, we, we're the super vanity culture. And so, you know, you deserve a little You owe it to yourself. I mean, we've heard all of these things. You deserve to be in the center of attention. I mean, it, obviously, you are, uh, you know, the, the best person. You are, uh, you know, uh, the, the one whose intellect, whose beauty, athleticism, and all of your fundamental powers are just so you know, overarchingly better than anyone around you. Of course you deserve to be admired, the center of attention in everybody's life. Uh, skip. Well, now, I'd uh, like to. And people yeah. hear that even sometimes in the church setting of, well, you know, God loves you unconditionally just the way you are. And so that works for me. Yeah, well, God loves you unconditionally, but not just the way you are. Uh, he loves you unconditionally, and that's why he's not going to leave you the way you are. He's going to make sure that you move on uh, through the circumstances, the, the, the challenges on life's way, uh, that you're going to either move closer to him or choose your other uh, father. But one way or another, you're going to have to make some choices, And uh, but just the way you are is mm -hmm. not the right word to use. So... Uh, Right. So that's it. I mean, yeah, the, the theology has been sort of turned on its head. And the same thing, by the way, power and pride are still there. Mm -hmm. And we just saw that with the German bishops uh, putting up the old hermeneutic of power right there at the beginning of the document. You can see, hmm, where does that come from? Absolutely. Sounds like the old pride to me. Sounds Absolutely. like, the, you know, just exactly the trick that... Uh, you know, the, that, you know, Hitler succumbed to, Stalin succumbed to, Elizabeth I succumbed to. You know, you, you look at just these 
tragic right. figures. Macbeth, uh, the reason I choose Macbeth is because Macbeth actually, in a way, he kind of knows better. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, when, when he, uh, he sees, you know, the, the, the witches tell him, oh, Macbeth, you've got the, uh, the power to be king. Right, right. And of course, you know, he's just lusting for the power. And, and of course, he just can't bring himself to kill um, you know, his competition, as it were. And then Lady Macbeth just, you know, cows him into it. Right. And indeed, who is going to finish the job herself when Macbeth, you know, couldn't just you know, plunge the old dagger in. So you look at that and you go, hmm, uh, this seems a very familiar scenario. Right. And I look around me in this culture and I think, is power and, and prejudice and pride, is that still a part of the culture in which we live. Oh, the Absolutely. internet has exacerbated it a thousand Unfortunately, times. Unfortunately, uh, we're running yeah. out of power. You guys are, at least in California, <laughs> and we're running out of time. So you're going to have to, you know, kind of give us your blessing right. on the way out the door here very quickly, Father. Okay. Oh, uh, and then bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all wisdom, the Lord of all love, the Lord who inspires you to be like him in that love and that faith, inspire you now to defend life and to be a part of that movement which is going to bring back inalienable rights and justice into our country fearlessly in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week. And, of course, all of Father Spitzer's books are available through the EWTN Religious Catalog. Next week, our topic continues based on Father's book. So stay with us for that, and you can see all of his books. I've got an EWTN bookmark with Kevin Turley and Fiorella DeMaria on this Thing of Darkness, a very interesting book. Check it out. And, of course, we've got our family celebration Saturday, October 1st, Phoenix Convention Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Go to EW10.com for more information. It is free. Did I say it was free? And you can register for the event. You don't need tickets, but it helps us gauge how many people are going to be there. I'm Doug Keck. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time in Father Spitzer's Universe. <laughs>